Welcome to the Lighthouse Community Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope today's teaching will encourage you in your faith and help you develop an increasing desire to walk with God. Let's listen in. <laughs> We're so glad you're here this morning. Eventually there will be lights. There it is. Okay, the lights are here. We are so glad. This is the, uh, the first Sunday after Thanksgiving. For those of you who are Michigan fans, congratulations. Yeah, I had to say that just to get it out of my system, right? Yeah. And we're so thankful for the prayers of the people of Lighthouse. As we've been working through this building project that Don and, and Jeff were talking about, there's great opportunity. We see the vision for what God has been doing here at Lighthouse down in Bluffton. And we're so thankful for the prayers of the people. It's great to be part of a family like we have here at Lighthouse, where we care about each other, we pray for each other. My name is Larry Sewell. I'm one of the elders here. And this week we're jumping into the ninth week of a 10 part series from the middle part of the Gospel of Matthew. So we're going to be in chapter 11 today in Matthew's Gospel. Now Matthew was there. He saw everything Jesus did. He, he heard everything Jesus said. He was an eyewitness. And if you add the, the eyewitness account of Matthew to what happened in the life of Jesus that he's recorded for us here in the, in the gospel, he wrote the story of Jesus' life, you add to that the fact that the Holy Spirit was kind of carrying along or, or moving Matthew as, his, as he spoke, you start to realize that what we have in the Bible is actually God's word. God is communicating directly to us the things that he wants us to know from a firsthand account and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, the reason I bring that up today, uh, that's the, the doctrine of, uh, of uh, inspiration of Scripture. The reason I bring that up today is because we're going to read one of the most profound claims, maybe the, the most profound claim in all of Scripture comes in Matthew chapter 11. Uh, Jesus is saying this. He's saying that he's the Messiah, that he is the Savior of the world. He is the one that Israel had been waiting for for all of these centuries. And today we're going to answer the question, how do we know that this is all true? How do we know that Jesus is who Jesus said that he was? So today the plan is to read through the first 19 verses of Matthew chapter 11 and kind of just work down through those verses together as we think about the claim that Jesus is making here that he is, in fact, the Messiah. Uh, as I think about that claim of Jesus, I think back to Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus said this, keep on seeking and you'll find him. It's an open invitation for us to find God right here in Matthew. So let's pray together before we read the passage. God, as we, as we quiet our hearts, I pray that uh, your Holy Spirit uh, would work within us Help us to have ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are, that are open, and maybe even raw, that we could say, we really want to know it's true. We really want to know you today. And so we pray for that good gift. The Holy Spirit, you are welcome here in this place today. We pray all this through Jesus. Amen. So let's start today by reading. It's a rather long passage. It's Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. So kind of buckle in and listen carefully as we read. 
When Jesus had finished giving these instructions to the 12 disciples, he went out to teach and to preach in towns throughout the region. John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing, and so he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the Messiah we are expecting, or should we keep looking for someone else? Jesus told them, Go back and tell John what you have heard and seen. The blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured. The deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And then he added, God blesses those who do not fall away because of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to talk about him, about John, to the crowds. What kind of man did you go to the wilderness to see? Was he a weak reed swayed by every breath of wind, or were you expecting to see a man dressed in expensive clothes? No, people with expensive clothes live in palaces. Were you looking for a prophet? Yes, and he's more than a prophet. John is the man to whom those scriptures refer when they say, look, I am sending a messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare the way before you. I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, None is greater than John the Baptist, and yet the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from that time, John the Baptist began, from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been, been forcefully advancing, and violent people are attacking it. For before John came, all the prophets and all the law of Moses look forward to this present time. And if you're willing to accept what I say, he is Elisha. The prophet, uh, one the prophet said would come. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen and understand. To what can I compare this generation? It's like children playing a game in the public square, and they complain to their friends. We played wedding songs and you didn't dance. We played funeral songs and you didn't mourn. For John didn't spend his time eating and drinking, and you say, he's possessed with a demon. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by its results." Now, there is a tremendous amount to unpack there, so we want to hit some of the highlights as we go. The first question that comes to my mind is, is who is this man, John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer? Well, he is the last prophet in the Old Covenant era. He's the last one before Jesus. Now, if you think back to the birth of John... Uh, Elizabeth is his mother, and Elizabeth was pregnant, six months pregnant, when uh, Mary found out that she was going to have a baby from her interaction with the angel, and Mary went to visit Elizabeth. And remember what happened when Mary spoke? The baby leaped within Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. His dad, Zechariah, was also filled with the Holy Spirit when he said this, John is going to be a prophet who prepares the way for the Lord, the one who would tell his people how to find, find salvation through forgiveness of sins. 
That's who John was. He was the one who was going to announce the coming of Jesus. He is the voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That's what the prophet said way back 700 years before. Now, the next verse, I have a slide there. John is the one who baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. And this is what was said. As he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on Jesus like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. John was baptizing with water, but Jesus was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. God's hand was on John all the way through his life. He's the one that said, uh, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's the same message that Jesus taught when he was walking around on the earth. So the big question in the mind of John's followers is the same question that the disciples asked when they were in the boat after Jesus had calmed the storm. And the question is this, who is this man? Who is Jesus? Now, at the time this portion of Matthew is being written, John is in jail. Okay? He, and that's, that's not a good place to be in the first century, right? His disciples seem to be aligning themselves with the Pharisees and asking questions about religious stuff, like why people don't fast in the presence of Jesus, things like that. And you remember the key teaching there. The old is passing away, and the new has come. John is the last prophet of the old covenant. From Elisha all the way through John, the last prophet of the old covenant, they're all pointing to Jesus. In fact, you can go all the way back to Moses and the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, they, they simply foreshadow Jesus and what was to come. Now, some people think that John was doubting Jesus because he was in prison, and life was really, really difficult. Some people think, well, maybe he was questioning whether Jesus was really the Messiah because his expectations for Jesus weren't being fulfilled. Maybe. But actually, I don't think that's what's happening at all. You know what I think is happening? I think John knew exactly who Jesus was. This is the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was the one who was there and heard God's voice speak as the Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism. I don't think John was confused at all. What I think was happening was John was leading his disciples who were confused about Jesus. He was leading them from his prison cell. And what did he tell them to do? Go ask Jesus. He sent them to the evidence. He's sending his, his followers directly to Jesus to ask the question about who Jesus is. This is a big moment. Jesus is either the Savior of the world or Jesus is a religious fad. It's one or the other. And John sent his disciples directly to Jesus to ask that question. Now, Jesus, when he responds, he talks about the evidence. He could have said, yes, I'm the Messiah. He could have said that. He said that in John chapter 4 when he talked to the woman at the well. He could have said that to John's disciples. But instead, he points to the evidence. He says this, 
Go tell John what you have heard and seen. It's this, this personal engagement with the evidence surrounding the authenticity of Jesus. Lame people now walk. Lepers are cured. Deaf people can hear. People are raised from the dead, foreshadowing future resurrection of all believers, all people. And good news is preached to the poor. Now, the good news is much more than physical healing. Physical healing is a temporary thing because this is a temporary world. Physical healing shows the compassion of Jesus, but it's a temporary thing. The good news has to do with the future resurrection of all believers, to be with Christ forever. Jesus forgives sin. The good news is the message of salvation from sin, from brokenness, from estrangement with God. Jesus offers eternal life to all people who seek him. Now, readers of the Old Testament would know about the promises uh, concerning Jesus that are contained in the Old Testament. They would have seen those, and they would have known that Jesus was fulfilling each of those promises. The Messiah, the evidence for the Messiah was in the, the, uh, the miracles that he performed. People could see those and understand. Some people struggle with miracles. I think that's natural, that's normal. Some people wonder if all of the miracles that we read in the Bible are actually true. I'm not sure if we're allowed to say that in church. Are we allowed to say that in church? Some people wonder when they read the Bible whether it's true. I want to speak frankly about miracles for just a moment. Uh, Back when I was a newer Christian, I read a book called Miracles by the author C.S. Lewis. And it's an interesting perspective that he has on miracles, and I think it's true. And his perspective is this. What you believe about miracles determines what you believe about miracles. You know, that's kind of how it works. If your position is that miracles are impossible, that they never can happen, that that's outside of reality, you can explain away all the evidence and never come to the truth, whether it's historical evidence or whether it's something you can look at right in front of you. There are people who denied the miracles of Jesus who were there and saw them. If your position is that miracles can't exist. No amount of evidence, historical or actual, in front of you right now today will ever convince you of the truth. We can make up excuses, and we can dismiss miracles very easily. You know, Jesus' brothers, during most of his life, didn't believe. In John chapter 7, uh, we, we see the crowd. Some believed, and some thought Jesus was a fraud. Those all happen in real time as they're, they're experiencing the miracles right in front of them. Some believed and some do not. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat any of this. These are eyewitness accounts, sometimes surprising in the detail that we read. The miracle that speaks the most loudly to me in all of the New Testament, though, is the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, there were 5,000 men plus women and children. There were probably 15,000 people on that grassy hillside in Galilee. And Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish, and everybody eats. 
All of those people came hungry and they left full. And yet there's no evidence in any of the Gospels that any of those people believed. In fact, later, Jesus says they didn't understand the miracle because of the hardness of their hearts. They not only heard about a miracle, they experienced it. They came hungry, they left full, and yet they didn't believe. That's the nature of miracles. I think a starting point for people who struggle with the authenticity of Scripture, and you may know people like that that you're talking to in your daily life, I think the starting point is maybe just to start by considering the possibility that Jesus is who Jesus said he was. To start with the possibility that the miracles might be true and that Jesus might actually be the Messiah. Many of us feel uh, a little bit like Doubting Thomas at times. Doubting Thomas saw the miracles of Jesus for three years, right? And at the end, after Jesus had died, he, uh, he was back to doubt. After having seen all the evidence, he's still back to doubt. And the thing about the account with Jesus and Thomas uh, near the end is the compassion that Jesus has toward those who are struggling to know him. Jesus has compassion toward people that are struggling. Listen to the account. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Reach, reach your hand in and put it to my side. Stop doubting, but believe. He showed him the evidence. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Thomas crossed over into genuine faith. He, he believed, he worshiped at that moment. But then look at verse 29. And Jesus told him, because you have seen me and you have believed, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus performed many other signs, that's miracles, in the presence of his disciples that are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you can have life in his name. I want to transition back uh, to the days of Uh, Matthew for just a moment. Jesus was with the disciples at that moment, and they were seeing the miracles, but they didn't have the presence of the Holy Spirit. They hadn't seen the resurrection yet at this point in time. They saw the miracles that were in front of them, but all those other things were yet to come. The vast majority of people who are believers in Jesus have never seen Jesus through history. Just a small number of people have seen him, actually. But we have the advantage of the entire scriptures in front of us. We have the uh, history um, and prophecies and all unfolding in front of us to read and understand. It's interesting to me that Jesus or that John sent his disciples to Jesus to find out what is true. And Jesus answered John's disciples by pointing at the evidence. That's how that discussion worked between Jesus and John's disciples. Now, there are lots of clear evidences 
for the veracity, the truthfulness of Scripture. And you can do a deep dive and study a lot of this. There's, there's great, great books out there to jump in. But I want to spend just a couple minutes talking about a handful of evidences that speak very loudly to me on a personal basis, if we could do that. Um, there are five that I want to put up. I just have all five there. and We'll just leave that slide up as I work through those just kind of quickly. But the first is the credibility of the biblical accounts. Most people that argue against the Bible are people who have never really read the Bible, which is kind of interesting and a little bit disingenuous. But as we, as we read and we study the accounts, they read like witness accounts. People had all sorts of different opinions as they read those accounts. And great credibility falls uh, because of that. We see Jesus curing sickness and, and calming storms and throwing out demons and, and raising people from the dead and speaking so clearly. All of that's included in the scripture. These narratives are eyewitness narratives. And they don't read like something that's put together to trick people. They read like eyewitness narratives. We also know that the ancient historical records, uh, particularly from the Old Testament, have been confirmed. Biblical history is confirmed. A lot of that's confirmed by modern archaeology. You can dive in and study uh, the archaeology that supports the truthfulness of Scripture. The second point there is prophecies that have come true. You can read prophecies in the Old Testament that came true in the Old Testament, and many of those things can be uh, validated by secular history. But you can also see the prophecies of Jesus in his life. His death, his resurrection, uh, predicted hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born. The testimony of creation. Jesus is the, uh, the one through whom the worlds were created. They scream about the presence of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. And not only that, every single person has this sense within them that there's more to this life than we see around us. Yeah, we, we have that in us. Well, the scriptures tell us we're born or we're created in the image of God. Creation screams from what we can see outside and what we know inside that there's something much bigger than us. The fourth item is the witness of early followers. I think about the stories of Peter and James and John and, and even Matthew as you read this gospel. You read these eyewitness accounts from people who are with Jesus. And they tell their stories and they're guided by the Holy Spirit as they write those stories down. They saw the miracles, they, saw, they heard the teaching, they saw the resurrection of Jesus. And the thing that matters the most, or the point that I would make, is this, they, they went to their deaths proclaiming Jesus as the risen Lord. Nobody does that if they know it's a lie. You just don't do that, right? These guys spent time with Jesus, and they proclaimed Jesus until the days that their, their days were over. They did that because they knew it was true. You don't do that for a lie. And the last point I would make is the present day lives that are being changed by the gospel. The Bible contrasts dead religion with supernatural faith. That's what the Bible does over and over again. I have seen lives of people changed by the gospel. Hearts that are changed 
by the gospel. My life is being changed as I engage the living and active word of God and sense the Holy Spirit leading me. It's a real thing. You can talk to people at Lighthouse who know and walk with God. It's a real thing in real time. There are lots of great uh, books out there. If you want to dive into this whole study of apologetics, is great stuff. One of the favorites of mine is Tim Keller's The Reason for God, where he talks about good reasons why he believes in God. Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ, is a great book. And uh, one of the classics, still my favorite, is C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. If you're a seeker or if you know somebody who is a seeker, those are great books to, to, uh, to give to others. Lots of people in this day, the first century, doubted Jesus because they had great expectations that were different than the reality that they were seeing. Jesus said that the kingdom of God is coming forcefully, and violent people are attacking it. He said that. And in Jesus' day, that was true. It's still true in our day, depending on where you go in the world. Sometimes the attacks against Christianity are very, very strong. It might seem weird to you that the way of salvation is the way of faith, not the way of me working harder and trying to be good before God and trying to live a perfect life. That seems different than what I would have expected. But think about it from a Jewish person's perspective in the first century. Do you think anybody thought that the Messiah would be born in a manger? That he would live a perfect life doing miracles, teaching about the kingdom of God, and then come into the crosshairs of the religious leaders who would partner with the Romans whom they hated to put Jesus to death? And that Jesus would rise from the dead and ascend to heaven? Do you think anybody who is Jewish in the first century would have expected that to be their Messiah? I would say probably not. The Bible is full of the unexpected. But the core theme of the scriptures is that salvation comes by, by, by faith. It's God's grace. Jesus is not helping us improve our old religious ways. He, in fact, is inaugurating the kingdom of God. That's why he came. He's talking about new hearts, new minds, people transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit leading us through the active living word of God and his presence in our lives. That's what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about a better religious system. He's talking about new life in Christ. John the Baptist was the one who was announcing the coming of Jesus. Jesus was pointing his followers to the evidence, the evidence that we can all see. Skeptics will always have a reason to argue why Jesus is just a fad or a religious figure. But wisdom teaches us to look at the evidence to look carefully at what's been said. The very least person in the kingdom of God who has genuine faith in the risen Savior, who has the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life as the the seal, the guarantee of genuine faith, that person is greater than the greatest Old Testament prophet in the Old Covenant. Those who don't fall away because of the real Jesus 
and what he has said and who he is, they're the ones who are truly blessed. The Bible is a divisive book. It's a powerful book. It's a, it's a dangerous book to read. Because if you read the Bible, you're going to come face to face with the reality of who Jesus is and what he has said. I remember very clearly a time in 2010 when I kind of came back to the scriptures in a very real way. I had been a believer a long time. I knew that the Holy Spirit was in me. I could sense that. But still I was leaving, leading my life myself with kind of a, a stiff arm to God. And I remember that year during a, a number of uh, circumstances that I decided I would read the scriptures carefully from the front to the back with one purpose in mind, that I would find the real, the real God in the pages of the scripture. And I remember uh, reading the Bible, uh, kind of an unfiltered way, pushing back against opinions of others and things I'd heard and books I had read, just to, to unfiltered hear the voice of God in the pages of Scripture. I remember feeling very far from God and knowing that other people were close to God, and I wasn't experiencing that. And I remember that God revealed himself so clearly in the pages of Scripture the gentle Savior who helps us when we seek him. Yeah, it wasn't the angry God mad at my sin. It was the gentle Savior drawing me to himself. The active living word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit drawing us uh, to himself. But there was a clear point that I'd come to many points in life, and at this time. In 2010, I made a different choice. I had to choose whether I was going to align myself with God or whether I was going to continue living the way I had been living. I had to make that choice. I knew it was true. And I was thinking about what's on the other side of that choice. God will speak to you if you seek him with your whole heart in the pages of the scripture. God will reach you there. The gentle Savior will hear your prayers. But you also need to know something else, that the Holy Spirit will lead you to decision points. If, you want, if we want to go on our own way and continue that way, he doesn't force us not to. But if we align ourselves with him, everything can change. I've talked to a number of people just in the last uh, probably couple months uh, talking about what happens on the other side of genuine faith, kind of a fearfulness about what happens if we submit our lives to God. What if a person prays for an open heart and an open mind and they, and they actually dive into Scripture and they start to read and they start to hear the voice of God from the pages of Scripture? What happens then? Well, I think what will happen if you have an open heart and you're seeking God, that you'll find him there. That's what I think will happen. And I think if you get to the point of desperation where you say, you know what, I'm going to follow you instead of following my own path, I think uh, you'll make a good choice and you'll find God in that humility. God is good and God is gentle and God is kind. And it is his kindness, and it is his goodness, and it is his love that draws us to salvation. We can trust that. There's a trade that we have to make. There's a trade we have to make 
when we experience and we understand the real Jesus as he's described in the Bible. If Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, if he is, in fact, the Savior of the world, if he is the one uh, who offers salvation to us, we have to make a choice. Are we going to accept the forgiveness of God that comes with that reconciliation with God and and freedom from sin? Are we going to accept that? Are we going to accept new life in Christ? That's what he offers a chance of new life, a chance of inner peace, a chance to uh, have the capacity to overcome the sin that drags us down and embarrasses us. All of that. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our life guiding us, a heart that is changing into conformity with Christ. Jesus taught us that eternal life is knowing God. That's what the Bible's talking about, that we can know him in an intimate way. We can know God. God reveals himself to those who align their hearts with him. That's what the Bible teaches. God is gentle and kind, and he draws us to himself. The alternative is to continue living our lives our own way. That's the alternative. There's a lot of fear in that particularly when there's an awareness that we're pushing God away. There are a lot of false choices in life. Religion and skepticism and inertia, all those things are just kind of pitches in the dirt. God invites us to know him. I'd like to read as a concluding passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 today, beginning at verse 18. Paul is writing here, and he's talking about this idea of human knowledge and and what we can know to be true. And this is what he says. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are heading for destruction. But to those who are being saved, they know it's the very power of God. For the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers and the scholars and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used the foolishness of our preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human reason and wisdom. So we preach Christ crucified. The Jews are offended. The Gentiles, they say it's all nonsense. But to those who are called to salvation, both the Jewish people and non-Jewish people, Christ is the power of God. He is the wisdom of God. The foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest human strength. God invites us to know him, to walk with him, to understand the truth of salvation. All the miracles that we see in the Bible, I think there's great evidence to understand that they're true, that they point us to Jesus the Messiah, the Savior of the world, that we can have life by believing 
in his name. This is the time that we end the sermon each week with prayer. And so I'd like to have the prayer partners come to the corners of the room. And this is a time where you're invited to pray. You can pray for yourself, or you can pray for a person that you know who is outside of faith. They love to pray with people from the congregation, so this is your time to prayer. But first, I'd like to pray for you, for us. God, I am so thankful for your grace that when I was lost, you found me, that you opened my heart and mind to understand the truth of the gospel. And I know there are a lot of people here who are hurt for those who are lost and far away. I pray that the, uh, the truth of these passages would ring true, and that you give us boldness as we share your grace with others. I pray at this time that you draw each person to prayer who needs to talk with you. I pray this through Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Lighthouse Community, check out our website at mylighthousecommunity.com or connect with us on Facebook. You're invited to join us live Sunday mornings at 909 or 1111. Thanks again for listening to the Lighthouse Community Podcast.